Welcome back to Just a Girl in True Crime. Let me adjust my volume, get rid of my echo. Alright, so, lots happened since we last talked. I got my hair cut shorter than normal. I got glasses because I'm literally blind as a bat. I kid you not. And I was doing a lot of research on the case that was supposed to be uploaded like two days ago. Um, If you are a fan of the um, Facebook group page, then you know what case I'm doing. Um, This might be a two-parter because I didn't even get to the trial yet. So, we are doing today, for you guys that don't know, Eileen Warnos. Um, If you don't know her, you probably should because I think every true crime fanatic person um, knows who she is. At least some type of like who she is. Um, She's just like this psychotic woman. Sorry, that was my computer chair. Um, and I feel like I really haven't talked about female ser- serial killers. So I figured I wanted to talk about Eileen. Um, and let's begin. We're just going to talk about Eileen's story um, and stuff like that. And we're just going to go on. Now, obviously, Eileen's story, like her childhood, is very sad. It's a very tragic di- story or like a disa- with a disastrous childhood. Eileen was born in Rochester, Michigan in February. I couldn't find the date, but I do know the year. She was born of the year of 1956. While her parents were actually, like, in the middle of a divorce, she actually never got to meet her father since he was, um, you know, in jail all the time. And you might be wondering, because uh, I didn't know why he was in jail. Um, You might be like, you know, why is he in jail? Well, I'm going to tell you. He was in jail for being a child molester it's disgusting um and he was also diagnosed with schizophrenia and he actually ended up committing suicide while in prison and he did that by hanging himself and if that wasn't you know hard enough on Eileen her own mother actually ended up abandoning her shortly before her fourth birthday and then she was adopted by her maternal grandparents in Troy Michigan and which I found out like that her, I read somewhere that her grandpa was actually her father, but I didn't know if it was like real or not because I didn't look too hard into her backstory, but that was on the site. So I'm not sure. I think that's what it is, but I don't know. Anyway, um, by the age 11, Eileen had actually started to, um, pro- started to prostitute herself, uh, to schoolmates in exchange for drugs, cigarettes, and food. And, you know, guys, I'm just going to say this really right now. For an 11-year-old to start prostituting herself, that is really sad. I don't care, like, what you did or not. You had a sad childhood. But you know what we always say. And, like, the morbid podcast says, you feel bad for the child, but you can't feel bad for the adult that they've grown up to be. Okay? So, I mean, I feel for her. That's sad. Um, By Eileen's account, she was sexually assaulted and beaten by her alcoholic grandfather, and she was a, like a habitual runaway. One day, she hitchhiked home from a party, and she was picked up, and she was raped by a friend of her grandfather's. She was only 13 years old at that time. I'm talking, mommy's doing her podcast. You need help? What's wrong? Sorry, guys. Um, 
my three-year-old's up and he's not napping, so I figured I'd do it now because I wanted to do it last night, and, you know, I was just really tired. I've been sleeping more than normal lately, and I don't know why. Anyway, um, so that happened to her when she was 13. She ended up getting pregnant, and the baby was a boy, and she gave birth to him at, you know, 14, and after she birthed him, the baby was automatically put up for adoption, and she ended up going to this place for unwed mothers. At the age of 15, she officially dropped out of high school, and her grandmother actually ended up passing away about the same time she dropped out of high school. So, to make matters worse, Eileen's grandfather then threw her out of the house and basically told her to get out. Saying, you know, basically, you know, you're not my problem anymore and, like, good luck. So, here we have a 15-year-old Eileen, no job, no money, no food. She dropped out of school. Her grandma just passed and stuff like that. So, she's, like, now in her own, out on her own and everything. So, like I said, 15-year-old Eileen was homeless And, you know, she obviously had no money to support herself. So she turned to the only thing she knew how to do or what, you know, what to do. And that's what to do in in order to survive. And then she went back into prostitution in order, you know, for her to live. I mean, got to do what you got to do. I mean, especially if your family doesn't want you and you were just thrown out and you have nobody else. I mean, you got to survive. So... It's sad. As Eileen put it, she hit the roads sleeping in cars, begging, stealing, selling pills, and selling sex. Eileen went to her grandmother's funeral, but while she was there, she actually got busted as a runaway, and she was sentenced to six months in the Adrian Girls School, and she also was declared a ward of the state until she was the age of 18, So, meaning since, you know, if you don't know what a ward of the state is, you don't have family, no one's to take care of you. So, then the state um, basically is like a big parent or guardian and they're responsible for you until you turn 18. So, yeah, they were, you know, her big parent or guardian, they were responsible for her. Um, So, Eileen's, you know, life... Um, obviously was in a downward spiral from childhood because of her father, you know, obviously that he was in jail and then he killed himself. Then her mom left her and then her grandma passed and then her grandfather, you know, just decided to throw her out. That all happened, you know, obviously by the time she was 15 years old. Think how much shit can somebody go through at a young age? Now, I also, like I said, we, you know, we can have sympathy for her. Um, but, you know, it doesn't, we can have sympathy for her because, you know, so, most people are dealt with a bad hand in life. I was, um, if you've listened to my story on my podcast, you guys already know, and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it's up to you to really, like, turn it around or if you're just gonna stay in that same situation. You have to come out of that. Not everybody does. Um, you know, some don't get out of that darkness. That's not a luxury for them. 
unfortunately that darkness takes over and it molds and shapes them into who it becomes. So that's sad. But you know, it does not excuse what she does to these men. It's very sad and when I cover the trial, we're going to get through all of it, I promise. Because, woo. Alright. Anyway, back to the story. So just after two weeks at the Adrian Girls School, Eileen said she was suddenly getting, like, homesick. And Eileen describes the school as so wide open you could just walk away. So Eileen figured it would be a piece of cake. One morning, she ended up volunteering for kitchen duty, and after breakfast, and after that morning, and after that morning um, of roll call and one more round of a check from the cottage guard, Eileen decided to make her move. If you hear sirens, there must be a big fire somewhere close by, because that's the second fire truck I saw. Um, Eileen, you know, she bolted out of the back door and she ran as fast as she could. And Eileen darted across the dirt road. She jumped the ditch and headed into the woods. And she said she floored it through pine brush and shrub. And Eileen said like her legs and her lungs were burning, but she knew she also like had to keep going for at least like a mile or two before she could even slow down. Eileen then said she heard the hounds on her trail and she hoped to find, I guess, like kind of like a safe haven, like somewhere to hide out. And she found that um, near the tracks and she, you know, wished for the best. She went there and said, all right, <laughs> let's hope I do this. Let's hope it's fine. Um, Eileen described her pursuers as one huge fat guy in farmer jeans and one dog. Um, and she said they were close to her. She also said the dog, you know, stared at her directly for her at a moment before going back and sniffing the ground and moving down further tracks, like, far away from her. Minutes later, a second guy came with the dog in the woods, but neither the man nor the dog noticed her. And then Eileen breached the edge of a field that she would have to cross, but, you know, she decided she needed to rest for a little bit under a tree in the middle of this field. And that's just when the third man walked up and simply said to her, it was a long walk to get to ya. Mind if I sit down and catch my breath? <laughs> I'd be like, what? Um, Eileen, you know, obviously was finally busted. But hey, give her credit. She almost made it three miles anyway from the, away from the school. Now, Eileen did escape for a second time. But instead of, you know, going in the morning, she actually decided to go at night. Um, this time, Eileen ended up being badly cut when she ran, ran through like a barbed wire fence. And she fell in the pits containing coiled barbed wire several times. This escape was better than the last time. She actually was gone for three weeks before being captured. And then she was eventually sent back to the school. So, whoa. That's, maybe she didn't hide in the same spot. I don't know. Now, this school, I guess, had reports of um, cruel punishments from, like, the early 20th century. But Eileen never, like, makes any mention of any unusual punishments following her two, two escape attempts. But 
In fact, after her second escaped attempt, she ended up making a deal with the counselor that if she behaved for a full 60 days without incident, she would be released. And, you know, strangely, Eileen kept her word. She was like, okay, cool, that's easy. Um, so she kept her nose clean and she stayed out of trouble. And she was eventually released when her 60 days were up. Now, mind you, she probably was still 15 years old. And she was still a ward of the state for three more years. But she left, and that's when, you know, she left with that after 60 days. And Eileen said goodbye to Michigan, and she decided to go to the warm and sunny state of Florida. The only thing I don't get is, how couldn't the counselors get in trouble because if they say, like, where's Eileen Warnos? And you're like, can you imagine, like, telling someone, oh, we made a deal with her that if she was good for 60 days, we, like, let her go on her own? I mean, you're supposed to be in charge of that child. That just seems very weird to me. All right, but so now she's in now she's in Florida, okay? All right. So when she got there, I was getting a drink. <laughs> She got there by prostituting and hitchhiking her way through several states. And, you know, that's, you know, a little bit of Eileen's, like, um, background. And now we can stop, you know, now we can stop feeling bad about her. And we can, uh, you know, talk about the seven men that she murdered. We're going to talk about her girlfriend. We're actually going to talk about her, um, we're going to talk about her husband, too, that I didn't know she was married until I was doing this. So before I talk about any of the men, I would do want to talk about her husband. Um, we won't talk about her girlfriend until like a little bit later and stuff like that. All right. So. When Eileen like got down to Florida, she was presented with a potential life changing piece of luck. She actually met a wealthy yacht club president, 69 year old Louis Fell, who actually fell in love with her and. They got married. Oh, my watch is dying. <laughs> they got married in 1976. Eileen soon, though, reverted to the type of, like, behavior she knew. And she began fighting in bars. And she was sent to jail for assault as a result. Now, Lewis, her husband, was totally horrified that his wife was a brawling bride. And, you know, he came to the conclusion and he later realized that she had no place in his high society lifestyle. And he actually had their marriage and all just after like a few months. I think they were only married for like nine weeks or something like that. And I said, probably for the best. Louis, you bought, you dodged a bullet. Good job. Now, thereafter, um, Eileen's life, you know, resumed its steady downward spiral. Her brother, Keith, um, died of throat cancer that same year as her marriage and divorce from Lewis. And she blew his $10,000 life um, insurance check on a luxury car that she shortly wrecked after. Man, Eileen. Her destructive streak continued. And over the next 10 years, she drifted aim aimlessly, still working as a prostitute and committing various crimes that ranged from forgery and theft to armed robbery and assault. But don't worry, we're going to get into all of that. In 1986, Eileen met a 24-year-old woman named Tyra Moore. 
at a Daytona gay bar, or it was like a biker bar type thing, but you know what I mean. The couple began to, I'm sorry, the couple began a volatile and intense relationship for the last four years, and Moore was drawn into Warno's cycle of vandalism, violence, and harassment. Good. Good, good, good. But we're going to talk about them later because, like, I found so much shit. <laughs> okay. And now we're going to talk about the seven men that she unfortunately took from this earth. I mean, so here we go. Um, Couldn't find a lot of how they met. So um, I'm going to hop right into it. The first one is named Richard Mallory. And he was 51 years old. He was the owner of Clearwater, Florida Electronics Repairs repair business his only constants were alcohol sex and paranoia and he was known to go missing for like a few days and then you know he'd just come back so when he didn't like come into work or something they probably thought like he was on like one of his benders or no something like that like they're like oh richard's fine because he does it all the time like it's okay he'll be back but it wasn't until richard's 1977 um, Cadillac was found um, a few days later outside the D- Daytona that anyone knew anything about like him being missing. Then on December 13th in 1989, so they took like a long time, I guess, to find this guy. Holy heck. Two men were um, just looking for like some scrap metal along a, like a dirt road close to Interstate 95 in I'm going to so butcher this county, so I'm so sorry. Volusa County, Florida? That sounds right. Um, And what they ended up finding was a body wrapped in a rubber-backed carpet runner. I put rubber band, and I'm like, that's not right. So I had to rewrite it. Um, So, you know, they weren't affected by the bystander thingy. And they actually um called police. And that's when the investigation started. Police carefully took the fingerprints of the guy wrapped in the carpet runner. And then later the police were actually able to identify him as Richard Mallory. And he was last seen just 13 days earlier. Um, but when police discovered him, they saw that he actually had been shot three times from a .22 gun. I don't know much about guns. so Now, months later... They still, like, didn't have any real leads to go on. Now, there was some suspicion that revolved around a stripper that went by the name of Chastity. And Chastity had told her boyfriend that she was actually gone for a few days to party with Richard, and she was the one that ended up killing him. I don't know why you'd say that to somebody. I mean, if I killed somebody, I'm not telling anybody. I think I'd take it to my grave. I'm just saying. Um. So, when they found out, you know, like, Chastity told her boyfriend, like, that she killed Richard, police, like, ended up arresting her, but then they ended up realizing that her confession was prompted by a burst of anger at her boyfriend and that it wasn't true. So, I guess they just let Chastity go, because that's all I found out about that. Um, And after a number of, you know, dead ends, Richard's case, you know, ends up going cold because they can't find anything. Now, I'm going to tell you how, like, Richard and Eileen met. 
Um, Richard ended up picking Eileen up on November 30th. Um, and I guess Richard made, like, some type of comment to her, like, is she going to offer her services to him? And, you know, Eileen said Richard was a convicted rapist at the time, which it's very strange because I'm like, okay. So she killed a rapist, a convicted rapist. I mean, I guess that's not wrong. I mean, doesn't excuse her for killing anybody and don't take it like that. And, like, I'm not being like, oh, good job, Eileen. I mean, but if he was really a convicted rapist, I mean. I guess he had what's coming to him. I don't, I don't know. Um, Eileen did say that Richard, like, ended up trying to rape her. And that's when she, like, pulled her gun out of her purse or whatever. And she just shot him. I mean, but she shot him three times. She actually would later plead um, that this act was actually a self-defense given to, you know, given to Richard's questionable character. And so Eileen, you know, she continued to use her life of prostitution to lure men in and murder them. So, you know, take that what you want, guys. But, you know, if if she just did it to Richard, then I could be like, okay, I get it, right? And she could have stopped. But she didn't stop after Richard Mallory. Oh, no. She killed six other guys. So, nearly six months later, another body was found along the highway in Florida with six bullets lodged into his body, and his name was David Spears. He was aged um, thir- um, 43, I must have 34, and his body was found on June 7th, and David was from Sarasota, Sosta, Sarasota, that's how I think it is, and he was a heavy equipment operator who was last seen on May 18th, I read somewhere like he worked like as a contractor or like in construction and stuff like that, and like I said, he was seen on May 18th. And he told his boss and his friends that he was actually going to Orlando for a vacation, but he never made it there. His truck was found on Interstate 75 with all the doors unlocked and the license plate was missing. And he was shot with the same type of gun that Richard had been shot with, which was that .22. Investigators say that they also found a used condom near his body. Like, what? What? Let me get a drink. I'll be right back. Let me pause this quick. Um, so, the, you know, they use condoms really, um, it's a little weird. Eileen said that David tried to probably hurt her in the same way, you know, basically to justify her shooting him. But it was a, a tough, like, thing to actually claim because many people testified that David was an honest man and a good person, and in fact, his ex-wife, like, was financially stable, so when I read that, I was like, okay, he's, um, obviously taking care of his, like, ex-wife and making sure she's all right, and she was, like, financially secured, so, you know, he still, he still kept, he still kept, like, taking care of her, which is nice. Um, the third victim was found only a few days after David Spears, um, was murdered, and this was 40-year-old Charles, um, Cars, 
Cadon, I think that's how you pronounce it. And he was actually shot nine times in the chest and in the stomach. Now, many people question why he had been shot so many times by Eileen. If she was just trying to, you know, like defend herself. Like the two others, um, previous, like the two other previous murders, he was found in a secluded area. And, you know, Eileen, you know, stated that it was self-defense. But this one, um, she actually later committed that she just did this in cold, um, she, she just did this murder in cold blood. Talk about scary. Because that would terrify the shit out of me. <clears throat> the fourth victim is 50-year-old Troy um, Barres. Police found his body on August 4th in 1990 in um, Marion County. And he was reported missing on July 31st in 1990. And his body was already decomposing when it was found. So meaning he's been dead for a long time. Right? Sorry. <laughs> People were blowing my phone up. Um, Like the others, he was also in a secluded area. But furthermore, he... You know, he was actually, like, well-liked. He was said to be, like, hardworking. And he was a respected member of his community. When he was examined, he had two gunshot wounds to the torso. And that was the cause of death. The fifth victim was named Charles Humphreys, or they called him Dick. Um, He was a retired Air Force major and police chief in Florida, which, man, you got some... Co- if you're going to murder a police chief, okay? I'm just saying. Because how did nobody not know he was missing? Um, He was also known, you know, as a family man, and he was also well-respected by his colleagues at work. And his body was found in the same county as Troy's, which was Marion County. And the date they found him was September 12th, two, um, yeah, 2000. No, September 12th, 1990. And he had multiple gunshot wounds to the torso and head. And his car was later found in the Suwannee County. I think that's how it is. Her sixth victim was a 65-year-old Peter Symes. And he left for he left um, Florida for New Jersey in June 1990. But his car was found on July 4th in 1990 in Orange Springs. Now, out of all of the victims, um, out of all the victims, his body was actually never found. Although a witness did tell police that they saw two women near his car in Orange Springs. And, you know, during the trial, uh, Eileen continuously denied being responsible for his murder. Although there was very strong evidence linking to her, linking her to his stolen car. Similar to other victims, Peter was said to be a very good person. And he was easygoing and he was actually very religious. As well. Her seventh and final victim was a man named um, Walter Antonio and he was uh, 62 years old. And he was found on November 19th in 1990. And he was partially naked. 
He was also found in a secluded area, and he had four gunshot wounds to the back and head. So he didn't see his, if he was shot in the head, he didn't see that coming. So that's my thing. His car was found in Brevard County five days later, and he was a police officer on reserves. Now, let's talk about her girlfriend, Tyra or Ty. I'm going to refer her to her as Ty most of the time. Um, and let's talk a little bit about them. Now, like I said, they met, they met before Eileen started like her murder spree. Eileen was 30 years old at the time, and Ty was 24 years old at the time. They met the year of uh, 1986. <clears throat> and let's give a little bit backstory of them, of uh, Ty. So Ty is from Cad- Cadiz, Ohio, hometown of Clark, Clark um, Gable. And she attended high school, she attended a school at Harrison Hills Vocational School where she was a C student. She ended up leaving town because it was too small for her to like be out as a lesbian. And now Ty's father was a well-respected carpenter, carpenter and a brick mason. I don't know what a brick mason is. Is that someone who like lays bricks? That's what I would assume. She has also she also has one sister and she has three brothers. Ty worked as a hotel maid and Ty and Eileen had met in like that biker bar or wherever. And Ty recalled that evening she said, you know, Eileen was there um alone and Ty was also there by herself that evening. And you know, they ended up just started they ended up like sparking up a conversation. They hit it off, and, you know, at the end of the night, Eileen actually ended up going home with Ty. They ended up spending the whole weekend together, and that's when they became a couple. Um, so we all know Eileen's work profession, okay? We all know she's a prostitute when she met Ty. Now, Eileen had been, you know, obviously in, like, a serious... Um, amount of like short relationships within uh, men and you know she's only been married to Lewis and that was only for like nine weeks like I said but Eileen you know she actually said she found something special in Ty and Eileen you know was in love that's simple enough right and that um, Ty had actually became Eileen's everything she Ty was the center of her universe, and their relationship actually lasted for like four or four and a half years. Like that was Eileen's longest relationship. <clears throat> now I read that they actually didn't have like a place of their own. They stayed in motels. Um, they stayed in trailers, and they even actually spent a couple nights in the woods sometimes. Which that's a little weird. And if you're wondering, you know, like, how they afforded, like, motels and trailers, well, Eileen supported them, supported the couple through her work, you know, the prostitution, on the Florida highways. However, Ty said she, you know, actually didn't approve of her girlfriend's work um, that she did. And Ty said, you know, once she found out that Eileen was prostituting, she tried to get Eileen to stop. and 
she said, um, Ty said that she tried to tell her, you know, like, this isn't safe. Uh, you can't do it. And Ty also tried to tell her, like, I care about you. Like, you need to stop this. But Ty said no matter what she was saying, it, it didn't work. And Eileen just didn't stop prostituting. So even though she didn't stop, um, you know, that's a little weird. Because Eileen didn't budge. I lost my train of thought. That's why, like, I went back. Now, if Eileen said that, you know, Ty is the center of her universe, she, like, really must um, value her opinion and everything. If your girlfriend, okay, came up to you and was like, hey, I don't want to, um, I don't want you to prostitute anymore. And, like, she was, like I said, the center of her universe you know, wouldn't Eileen be like, oh, yeah, you know what? You're right. Like, why couldn't you just stop? But, you know, she didn't. So, you know, did you really care that much about your girlfriend? I don't know. Only she knows. But despite their disagreement uh, the, um, about it, the two actually remained close. Eileen will also consider Ty to be her wife, and she did enjoy providing for them. When Eileen was working... Um, when Eileen wasn't working, the two would spend time, you know, together, whether it was watching TV or if it was in a bar drinking. Between the years of 1987 and 1988, Eileen was actually questioned by the police at least three times for hitting a man with a beer bottle, um, vandalizing her apartment along with Ty, and making a threatening phone and making threatening phone calls to a supermarket. Which I don't know why I find funny, but how are you gonna? How are you going to call and, like, threaten a supermarket? Speaking of supermarkets, it's funny. So I do Instacart a lot. Um, And my three-year-old, he always tells me, he doesn't call it a grocery store. And, like, he started this, like, last week. He's like, Mommy, are we going to the supermarket? Or did you buy that from the supermarket? And I'm like, supermarket? You mean the grocery store? Because, you know, we're not in this time frame where they call it a supermarket, okay? It was just the funniest thing. Okay. Anyway. And it's obviously very clear that Eileen was, you know, the more dominant. And the one who, like, frequently got into altercations. Now, Ty said, Ty had knew, had to know about at least one of the murders. But I actually think she knew about two. If not, I think she knew about all of them. Because how do you not spend four and a half years with somebody while she's, you know, committing these murders and stuff like that? Like, how do you not know that? I mean, I get, like, people, like, there's some who kept their family away. But they said she knew about one, and I'm going to explain it to you. But I think she knew about two. So, Ty knew about Eileen's first victim, which was Richard Mallory. Eileen actually drove the Cadillac to their place, and, you know, she ended up confessing to Ty. And Ty recalled that night that they were sitting down, and they were watching TV. And Eileen comes out and just says, hey, I have to tell you something. And Tyra, you know, she's probably like, okay, what's that? You know, just tell me. That's me quoting what she would say. And then I put LOL. And, you know, Eileen just came out and said that she shot and killed a man that day. So out of shock, I just almost dropped my pen. Um, You know, 
normal, right? Eventually, um, eventually, you know, I'm sorry, hold on, I lost my spot. Um, so, you know, when Eileen told Ty that, Ty, like, said that she didn't want to know anymore because she didn't want to go, like, into the police. She didn't want to, like, have to go to the police and tell them that, like, her crazy-ass girlfriend is over here murdering people and stuff like that. So, she just didn't want to know. She didn't want Eileen to talk about it anymore because she didn't want to have to go to the police. I mean, I'm going to say, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Ty, I think you should have went to the police after Eileen told you that she killed Richard, okay? I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna put that out there. And, you know, we already knew that Eileen, obviously, she kept killing. And Ty, you know, grew more suspicious as Eileen, you know, she started to bring home more stolen items, like, aka the stuff she stole from the men she murdered. And she, you know, Ty said she refused to listen to Eileen when she tried to tell Ty, like, how she got these items. And Ty basically was like, I didn't want to be forced to call the police. Um, and everything like that. If she heard the truth. Which, you know, I honestly don't believe because, you know... Eileen told you about Richard and you still, like, didn't say anything. Maybe she thought it was a joke. Maybe she thought, no, this bitch did not kill some man. I don't know. Um, to, to like, basically, um, complicate matters more, Eileen had grown increasingly angry and unstable. Although Eileen promised Ty that she would never hurt her, um, Ty was afraid of what Eileen might do if she felt, like, betrayed. And then they fell into a lifestyle of pawning, of pawning the stolen belongings of murdered, like, the stuff from, like, the murdered men for, like, cash and driving their cars. And it was through these practices that the two actually were caught because they're dumbasses. Now, they say Ty's involvement was discovered through a car accident. Um, so when Eileen murdered Peter, she, um, right before she and Ty had ran off his car, the road, they ran his car off a month before he disappeared. Like it was stated, a witness actually saw two women, which obviously were probably Eileen and Ty. And the witness saw, you know, two women climb out of the car, cursing and throwing beer cans into the forest. The blonde one was bleeding. This witness provided the police with descriptions, and they set out, like, a nationwide bullet bulletin. Calls came in identifying the two women. Eileen's bloody handprint um, was on the car, and it also matched to a thumbprint on a Daytona pawn shop car used for items belonging to Richard Mallory. Now we're getting somewhere. So remember, Richard's case had gone closed for a couple years. They won't find any leads, but now that this fingerprint is matched to Eileen over here and it's stuff with Richard, the police are like, okay, stop. you know, the wheels are starting to turn, I believe. The police closed in, and that's when Eileen, you know, she went on to kill the three more men. Um, I think, you know, I, 
I, I, part of me believes that Ty knew that Eileen killed all these men. I'm just, I just feel like she just didn't know about one. I feel like she knew about all of them. If Eileen brought stolen stuff home and you, like, didn't know, you had to know where it was coming from because she was, you no know, like, prostituting her stuff and everything. So, like, you had to know. That's just my thing. Now, when I heard that they actually were wanted, she actually jumps it. She's like, fuck you, Eileen. I'm out. <laughs> I mean, she probably didn't say that. That's how I would have that's probably how I would imagine that would have went in her head. She jumped ship and she moved to Pittston, Pennsylvania, where I live in Pennsylvania, and I've never heard of Pittston, so I don't know. And she moved there to live with her sister. On January 9th, 9th in 1991, the police actually had finally arrested Eileen at the Last Resort Biker Bar in Port Orange, Florida. The next day, they located Ty in Pennsylvania, you know in Pittston and they came down the two officers like took her statement but they did not charge her with anything um now Tyra you know she didn't want to or Ty Ty didn't want to talk to police originally but they made her an offer she could not refuse basically they told Ty to get Eileen to confess and they would give her straight immunity for everything so you know she walks scot free so she was put into um, a hotel room. It was piled with food and Budweiser. And then Ty, um, Ty was instructed to call Eileen um, in jail until she admitted to her crimes. She actually made 11 calls in total and frantically claimed to be terrified of being charged for the murders herself. When Eileen asked if she was being recorded, you know, Ty told her, you know, no, you're innocent. Um, and then that's when Eileen was like, you're innocent. And that's what she said over the phone. She said, I'm not going to let you go to jail. Listen, if I have to confess, I will. On January 16th, she did. She said, I don't want more to get messed up for something I did. Eileen told, reportedly told police, I'm going to miss her for the rest of my life. And her trial began on January 13th in 1992. I was not even born. Whew. Okay. So, obviously, you know, Tyra, Tyra became the star witness in the case. She actually took the stand on the fourth day of her trial and provided 75 minutes of testimony. It was only the second time since Eileen arrested, since Eileen's arrest that the two had ever seen each other. Okay, so I did not do the trial. I have not even came close to that. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause this real quick, and I'm going to grab some stuff, and then I'm going to, I don't know, I got 43 minutes. Okay, yep, I'll be right back. Okay, I found some stuff. Um, so she said she'd confess, and in, in uh, January 16th, 1992, she did confess. Um... I didn't write this down. She confessed to, you know, killing all seven men after they picked her up from hitchhiking. She did tell police that she, quote, said, I just wish I never would have done what I did. I still have to say to myself, I still say that it was self-defense because most of them either were going to start to beat me or they were going to screw me in the ass. What the? Jesus. They'd get rough with me. 
so I'd fight them and I'd get away from them. As I'd get away for them, from them, I'd grab my gun and I'd just start shooting. Whoa. Orno said that she um, was still confessing because she didn't want more, obviously, like I said, to be messed up for something that she did. And she said she was going to miss her for the rest of her life. Um, Eileen also gave directions for a dime, a dive team to recover her weapon from the point, uh, twenty-two caliber pistol that um, she was then charged in connection with the murder, um, with the murder of Richard Mallory. Um, also in her trial, a judge allowed in evidence from all six murders. Um, though War- Eileen's first trial was only for the murder of her first vict- victim, I must said victory, her first victim, Mallory. Um, the ju- the judge ruled to allow in evidence from the other six murders. Prosecution was ev- able to present this evidence due to Florida's law known as Williams Rule, which allows evidence related to collateral crimes to be admitted if it helps to show motive, intent, knowledge, um, and, you know, stuff like that. Um, Eileen's girlfriend, obviously, Ty, was um, the star witness. and she testified against her along with all the evidence from the other murders the prosecution you know had their star witness um eileen clutched a handkerchief as moore's name was called and moore um she avoided eye contact warno um with warno's during her testimony um ty testified on that day that mallory was shot eileen said that she killed a man and according to Ty, that she didn't want to believe... Okay, so she didn't want to believe that it happened, and she told her to stop talking about it. Um, Ty also said that Warnos didn't appear injured or upset that day she told her about the killings. And Ty was never charged or implicated in the murders. And Eileen, you know, she was eventually found guilty after two hours of deliberation, and the jury found her guilty on first-degree murder. When the verdict was announced, Eileen was visibly upset and shouted, I was raped. I hope you get raped, scumbags of America. Wow. What the hell? Um, and we all know that she was, they were seeking the death penalty. In the penalty phase of the trial, the jurors were asked to recommend a sentence for uh, Eileen, and the prosecution, like I said, was seeking the death and the defense was obviously seeking life without parole. Um, Eileen's relative testified against her. Um, Eileen's mental health was brought up during the penalty phase. The defense asserted Eileen suffered from a personality disorder. One de- defense psychologist said that Miss Warnos is probably one of the most primitive people I've seen outside an, an institution. Her lawyers also contended her grandfather was an alcoholic who physically and emotionally, you know, abused her. But Eileen's claims were challenged by Barry Warnos, her grandfather's son, and he testified that he never seen his father beat or abuse Eileen. So, you know... He said, we were a pretty straight, normal family. Very little trouble in the family. Um, They've made multiple, like, movies. Like, I think they made, like, oh, yeah, they made Monster and stuff like that. 
And, you know, she was sentenced um, on January 31st, 1992. Eileen was sentenced to death. Um, I'm going to show you. I'm going to tell you what her, like, last meal was and stuff. At sentencing, the judge said, By warrant of the government of the state of Florida, you, Eileen Carol Warnos, will be electrocuted until you are dead. Boom, mic drop for the judge. I mean, that's a great way to say that. This lady, though, I'm not kidding you. She is scary. But I'll be right back real quick. Give me one second, guys. Okay. Oh, and when they were, um, when they did her trial, I forgot to say, they named her trial, uh, they called it dubbed the, the damsel of death. All right. So that's what we're working with here, guys. Now. You know, when you're on death row, you get a last meal, right? Okay. Oh, she was born on the 29th of February, by the way. I just found it. So, her last meal was as followed. She actually declined a special meal, but she had a hamburger and a snack food from the prison's canteen and one cup of black coffee. That's what she had. I mean, see, if I died, I mean, I'd be doing it big. Like, I, what would I have? I'll tell you, if I was ever on death row, guys, I'm going to tell you right now. I'd have some lobster. I'd have some steak, some shrimp. I don't even like caviar, but I'd have caviar. I'd have a night. I might even ask for some alcohol. I might, I mean, I might as well get lit before I die. I don't know if you're allowed to do that, but that's what I would want. Now, I think there's like, now I think there's like restrictions of what you can have because some, um, some people, like, order a lot of food just to be assholes, and they don't eat it, so I don't know. But that's what I'd order. I mean, I'd order everything <laughs> that sounds good. And I don't even like seafood, but, my I mean, my oldest son kind of ruined that for me when I got pregnant with him. Um, but, yeah, I think she said some last words, too. All right, Um, so her last words were, were I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock. And I'll be back, like, Independence Day with Jesus, June 6th. Like, the big movie, big mothership and all. I'll be back. And her remains um, were cremated, and they were scattered by a tree in her hometown. And, guys, that's, um, I wanted to talk to you guys about something earlier when, uh, my last podcast, but I forgot. But I'm going to do it now. But that's the story of Eileen over there. I hope I did it justice, because... Holy fuck. Oh my god, it's gonna storm and I gotta go I gotta go pick up my son and like Oh It's really fucking dark outside. Um I gotta go pick him up at like three thirty. I gotta leave here at like three fifteen. But it's really dark outside. But luckily I don't live far. Anyway, um I wanted to say something. So, um we all know I live in the Chris Watts case. I know. I <laughs> try not to mention this motherfucker, but but I was on Facebook because, like, I'm part of, like, some groups. Um, my heart goes out to the family. Um, I heard that their house is finally on the market. Um, let's look it up real quick. Their house is finally on market and everything, which is crazy. Okay. Um, now, I've seen, like, some places that it's up, but... From looking here, like, on some of my Facebook groups, we all want to know, like, oh, 
It's raining. Um, hope my Wi-Fi doesn't go because it's supposed to get like bad, severe like thunderstorms. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people say that like it's um, it's on market, but I just checked Z Willow, and it's not on market. But they have places. Um, they got like, um, they got like pictures and everything from like inside the house for like people who are um, um, like not in the states or who like in like the uk australia all my australia listeners and stuff like people holy shit oh yeah i'm not walking up there um to get it um but they like redid like the whole house like they took off the they took out they like repainted it all and stuff like that and a lot of people are saying like it's not the house but a lot of people are like no it is the house it definitely looks like the house um and it's just sad it's empty um and then i read somewhere like people are wanting to buy it i want to buy it um i don't want the hoa fees though so you know it's a beautiful house i'd love to buy and i'd love to move to colorado to buy the house if i had the money (laughs) but i don't um but that's not why i wanted to talk about chris watts that was just something that popped in my mind today because i just seen that um but I saw in a couple reports that Chris Watts is now saying, like, he's telling people, like, his mistress had something to do with the killings and stuff like that. So I've been keeping an eye on that. And I was like, oh, shit. It almost took you, like, four years. But, hey, I mean, you got it, right? Uh, Let me see real quick. I know. We're just doing a lot. Okay. Let me do this. Oh. All right. Um. Um. He's saying that, like, she's involved and whatnot. I don't... But we, you know, we really can't... Um. We can't really... Take what Chris Watts says, even though, you know, I'm pretty sure everybody knows that Chris Watts and his mistress were involved um, and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, we'll, uh, we'll have to see, but, oh, that's it, guys. Um, I think, uh, there's nothing really else to talk about. Um, oh, now that I'm done with all my, uh, stuff. So, yeah, that was the new update and everything. Pretty crazy, right? I almost, like, deleted my, uh, podcast. My session. Um, so, if you... Um, you can follow me on Instagram at Just a Girl and True Crime. You can send me a Gmail at Just a Girl and True Crime at gmail.com. You can like the Facebook page at Just a Girl and True Crime. Uh, it's pretty, pretty good over there. I got some couple new followers. Um, you can follow my TikTok account called, uh, Heaven's True Crime. You can follow our YouTube, my glasses just hit my microphone, at Just a Girl in True Crime. I have two videos up there and a couple shorts. 
and whatnot. Um, oh, also, I wanted to uh, thank this one person who gave me a five-star review. I'm not going to mention your name, but thank you so much. You know who you are if you still listen to this. Um, I'm guessing you got to my one where I almost gave up podcasting um, because of the negative stuff I was getting. Um, and I'm glad you, I'm so glad everybody who's still here, you guys enjoy my podcast. Um, you like the Facebook stuff. Um, you guys are just so kind and loving. And you know what? To the person who gave me a five star podcast, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to stop. I'm here to stay. Um, you know, and I tell people about it at work and, you know, I really talk about my podcast a lot. It's something I'm proud of. I've invested a lot of time. It's almost been two years. January will be, um, not January, December will be two years since I've started my podcast. So you know what? Good work takes time, but without you guys, I would not be able to make it. I would just be talking into a microphone, like, for myself. Um, But um, I'm not sure what case I'm going to do next. Um, I'm thinking about it. Um, I want to do the West Memphis at some point but that's like a lot that's gonna be like a multiple series um and everything kind of like the john benet and everything so i don't know maybe we'll do someone light and then i'll i'm probably gonna start my research for west memphis um but you know there's jeffrey dahmer there's Charles manson never gonna do the toy box killer um i don't know i might i don't know that's a lot to stomach um Maybe we'll do someone from, like, here. You guys can email me of what case you want to do. I want to kind of do something, like, out of the States. And something, like, I want to do, like, a UK, like, something in Germany, Australia. um, All them places and stuff like that. I think that'll be good. Um, But that is everything. I'm going to get off because I finished my podcast. And I hope you enjoyed Eileen Warnos. Um, Eileen, I hope you're in hell. And Ty, your day is definitely coming. And you know what they say. A lot of people question your love if you turned on your lover. That's what they say. I don't know. Maybe she. Ty, you had something more to do with it. I know you did. Oh, and shout out to my hairstylist um, who told me. I was telling her yesterday real quick that I wanted to solve the John Bonet case and the Chris Watts case. And kudos to her because she's like, I think you can. And I'm like, oh, bless your heart. I She's a great stylist um but that's it guys and i'm gonna head off here and i'm gonna relax before i have to go pick up my kiddo so enjoy